Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Oh, we're oh, oh, what have you been doing on, all day if already. not playing Elden Ring or watching movies? I played Pokemon today. Watching, I've been really watching this movie, movie today. Oh, you've Why actually you played Pokemon. Today? What are you doing? I wanted to listen to music and I wanted to eat breakfast and I can't really do either of those things effectively on Elden Ring because the experience is so... You can uh, go around the open world it's maybe. So Im- yeah, it's so I, immersive. I, I don't want to. Yeah, hey, right, have, exactly. Did anybody, Jason? Did you get to that cool area that we had talked about? Maybe that I don't want to spoil. You, you uh, no, 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 the one that I was saying, like I had read about it in review. Yeah. No, yeah, I, 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 I still I haven't got gotten there. there. Yeah. I still haven't gotten there. I, I understand it's like accessible, but not like obvious. Sort of, you might stumble upon it it's, type place. It's it's wild how like small the way to get into that is, and then it's like four hours long. It's like oh, shit. gigantic. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But I have I have had no indication of like where to find it on the map, and I'm. Hoping to keep it that way. Yeah, hey, you, uh, you'll you'll stumble across it eventually. And the point was know. that the the music for that boss is like some of the greatest shit. I was like, oh wow, this is like a fucking top tier. Damn great! Is amazing. it the same yes. composer uh, who did like Sekiro and the Dark Souls? I, can't I don't know. I will say there are some vibes of that in that song, so I could see it. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, there are some Sekiro. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. some really good like. I, I can't remember. Sure. I think it was Game Informer did an interview with um, the composer of Sekiro, who had also done at least some of the Dark yes. Souls. I don't know if she's done mm-hmm. if she did Bloodborne, but and she talked about her process, and it was fucking awesome. Looks that, like it's her uh, Kitamura. Oh. Kitamura. I think so. Yeah, Yuka Kitamura. Yeah, yeah she I did it so. too. Uh, there was a she goes fucking ham on that one song. Yeah, oh, it's so good. I, I can't she- wait. You're gonna see that boss, and you're gonna I I we I will get a message about it. The boss and the music there is like, yeah, so good. And, so I good. feel like yeah. it's it's silly to say that anything about Souls games is under discussed because they're discussed to death by everybody all the time. Yeah. But like, she is quietly one of the best working game composers. She's great. Right yeah. Now. yeah, yeah. And I feel like of all of the things that Souls gets brought up about, people don't talk about the fact that like the Ornstein and Smog theme fucking goes unbelievable and all yeah. the music in Sekiro is like extremely affecting and all that shit uh by the so, way i opened a, a chest in the the burnt yes. dragon ruins yes. mm-hmm. and it just took me to hell i'm just in there hell might be, yeah. there might be a yeah. few of those yeah, yeah. That, things. yeah wait wait you you got to where they're like um like caterpillar pillbug men or whatever yeah. and a bunch they're of people like the, mining they're like the foreman in this fucking mine oh my and god what like, the fuck is that yeah and it was like two in the morning and I was, I was desperately like crawling around trying to find my way out. And I kept finding these messages and all the messages were just like, I want to go home. Have either of you played, uh, you played Demon Souls? I know Jason, you played it maybe a little bit, not, but not much, much, maybe like five hours. Yeah. yeah. There's a level. I no, I don't know why nobody, maybe everybody did talk about this when it first came out or like when the remake came out and I missed it, but there's like a level in that, which is, it's just like a mine. And there's a bunch of people like toiling away endlessly, uh, like mining. And then like, the bad guys you fight are just like literally big fat capitalist pigs. They have hats <laughs> and suits and they're just they're like they're just big like fat pig people and they just like 
it's like literally, literally the 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 like the scheming rich like capitalist from that one old uh, cartoon. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It looks like, like a big guy. Uh, it's like literally that. That one tweet <laughs> that's, that's like. So you're, you're telling me that the final boss is, or that the final stage of every, every video game is you fight a boss, and then it says Karl Marx says, "Go on." <laughs> <laughs> I realize I've been drinking my drink just on microphone. Just I like haven't heard it. Slur- just slurping. Yeah. Apologies to anybody. I don't know if Jason's got to edit this out, but apologies Listen, to anybody that's no, hearing me no, slurp. I'm, I'm not at, going at to actually. At the top of this episode, I was thinking, how are we going to do this without Cody? Like, I, I miss Cody. He had some really good thoughts when we saw the movie at the Trilon together. But then we talked about Elden Ring for four minutes, and I'm like, hey, yeah. maybe Cody not being here is actually not so bad. And I was, ab- I was about to get ready to ask for your opinions about the new Pokemon game, because who the hell announces a new named Pokemon game? Two of them on a fucking yeah. Sunday. Who does that? I don't, on a it Sunday? doesn't fucking matter. I mean, Pokemon doesn't... It's like uh, Dennis, Charlie's boss, uh, made a really good point that like Pokemon Legends Arcurious is like very clearly a tech demo for a later game. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and yes. And it is... Uh, it turns out it was that game. So, yeah, they make like four of those bad boys a year because they're a money machine, <laughs> right? They just print money. And so like, it's so frustrating because it's like... And this is a whole tangent, but like... It, the whole capitalism breeds innovation is such bullshit, right? Because like the reason why Pokemon sucks as a franchise is because they can keep making the exact same game over and over again, yeah. and it makes so much money that nobody gives a shit. So like, why would they pay it like the time and attention and resources required to make an actual interesting Pokemon game when they can just make Red and Blue over and over again and make a quadrillion dollars off of it? What if people so, just play different games? I, know. I mean, people can let's, play let's different games. Just Pokemon. don't play. You played Pokemon earlier today. Just play a different game. I, this hey, is Harry, I'm, about. Let's make a um, Mar- the Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Fuck off. <laughs> God, shut up. Let's just make a text-based adventure Pokemon game. Let's just yeah, like, be the well, change we want to see in the world. This is legitimately an article I've I've like kicked around uh, pitching. But like the thing about Pokemon beyond the nostalgia and everything is that it's such a rich world for imagination that all of the Pokemon yeah. games are more about the Pokemon game that you make in your head when you're yeah. playing it. So it is like a, a genuine role-playing game in that sense. And it, it's that's almost part of the problem, right? Because it's like people have gotten so sort of inured with the idea that like, oh, I'm just playing like my Pokemon in my head. <laughs> that I mean, it's not really a problem, but it right. is frustrating. It's not, it sounds like that would benefit a lot from, and I think maybe the Arceus the conversation went this way, is like, hey, have the Breath of the Wild moment where it's totally player-guided, where it's like not at all prescriptive, where it's not XYZ. And it sounds like maybe the game doesn't actually do that, this tech demo no, of an it, Arceus it game. I mean, I will say that like Arcurius Legends is is also just a game that is mostly the game that you play in your head while you're playing it, but it is by far the most fun I've had with a Pokemon game in like yeah a, a very long time. I'm just wondering. Like me yeah. simply prefers to play the game that's on my TV. It sounds yes, like it has died ever it, since I was 13 it or sounds so. Like they gave it, if they gave it more of that Breath of the Wild and now more contemporaneously Elden Ring touch of like, just give them the space, uh, let them figure out the rules and let them go do what they like. If the, that would get it from more from like the game you play in your head to the game you're actually playing rather than you making up reasons for the things that you're doing. You can like, hey, you can externalize that through the world, through all of the Man, or like, things you get to do. Just the fact that there are multiple verbs in the Arcurius open world is like a really big, great help. Like you can throw food to Pokemon. You have to sort of like sneak around you. It's like, hey, remember in, in like 20 fucking 14 or 12 or whenever that was when Austin Watt. Walker wrote that article about how he so badly wants to do anything in an open world except for kill people. And then 
literally only Breath of the Wild did that, and then nobody else ever really? did it. Really? Did they? Was it only yes. Breath of the Wild? There are a bunch of tools that let you express yourself in different ways and understand yourself in relation to the environment. Uh, I'm all mad about that. Anyway, let's let's be a little bit less mad about video yeah. games. Hey, segue into hey good luck with this one jason uh please intro the rest of this podcast episode in some manner let's see let's see how you link these two open world video or an open world movie he's on the planes all the time nearly nearly driven to madness by discussions of pokemon uh we're going to pivot from there to a discussion of a man who is actually driven to madness after being deposed from his throne uh this is trilove a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the trilon cinema in minneapolis minnesota you can find us on twitter at trilove podcast you can find the trilon at trilon cinema and at trilon.org my name is jason daphnis you could eat me but i would just stick in your throat because i am indigestible uh and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus uh i totally blanked on a quote but i'm just gonna say i have three daughters i'm giving my land away to each of them i have been a warlord my entire life but now i've i've turned over a new leaf and i can see absolutely no consequences of this action so i'm just i'm gonna go ahead and um turn over all my lands and everything uh my name is aaron i'm about to be naked and you can find me on twitter at rb please that's a line. I, it's a line in the movie. Un, Don't make that reaction. Un, it's in there. Un- <laughs> I like how you had to put not weird on it at the end there. <laughs> I, I'm just weird. saying that apropos of nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, all I can see are your shoulders. So uh, prove me wrong. Uh, this episode is uh, the final in a series of late Kurosawa films that was playing at the trial. And if you missed it, that's unfortunate. I missed uh, two of them. But the two that I did get to see were a wonderful experience. But there are great uh, new series playing at the trial in this coming year, including this spring when we've got anime's great genius Satoshi Kon playing at the trial in March. Uh, and then in May, they are bringing through Ishiro Honda's Godzilla films and several other great series. Go to trialon.org to find tickets and new series and all sorts of cool things at the Trialon Aaron. The year of Go. Japan. The year, yes. the year of Nihon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, our film this week is Akira Kurosawa's 1985 film, Ron, a term that means chaos. You guys see how I, I set that up? Usually I say the name of the film and then the year, and then I say who it's directed by, but I hmm. have uh, smoothly put all that information into a sentence. Uh, yeah, that was wonderful. Flows natural. That was awesome. yeah, Good I, job. Yeah, I, I pointed it out weirdly on Megaphone. Yeah, let's keep talking no, about it. Uh, I'm yeah. still riding the high. It's all right. <laughs> Coming after the previously discussed uh, Dersu Urzala and uh, Kagemusha, uh, Ron is the last of the samurai epics that Kurosawa made uh, over the course of his long and uh, uh, prolific career. The film, which is a retelling of Shakespeare's King Lear, centers around an aging warlord of the Ichimonji clan. Uh, His name is Hidetora. Uh, He's played by Trilove favorite Tatsuya Nakadai, who, sensing his time is coming to an end, decides to relinquish his kingdom to the eldest of his three sons, Taro, who's played here by Akira uh, Tarao, I believe. Uh, The decision is met with uh, disagreement from his two other sons. Uh, His second son, Jiro, played by Jinpachi Nezu, uh, dislikes the decision uh, as he is jealous of his older brother. The youngest son, uh, Saburo, played by Daisuke uh, Ryo, uh, disagrees with the decision for slightly smarter reasons. He understands um, correctly, arguably, that without the strong character and will of his father in charge, uh, the brothers will quickly succumb to their distrust and dislike of each other. Uh, regardless, uh, Hidetora does leave his kingdom to Taro. Uh, Saburo is exiled, and chaos is indeed the result. I think also of note here is uh, Meiko uh, Harada as Lady uh, Katie, 
who is the uh, kind of vengeful wife of Taro, who secretly plots to bring ruin to the Ichimanji clan. Uh, the film was Kurosawa's third and final adaptation of Shakespeare after Throne of Blood, uh, based on Macbeth, and The Bad Sleepwell, uh, based on Hamlet. Uh, Ron was nominated for just a, a whole ton of awards, although it should be said that the, the film's reputation um, has actually grown over the years. The reputation was quite good on release. It was well acclaimed and whatnot, um, but it has uh, grown to be even more appreciated. Um, it's usually considered if one of, if not the actual best Kurosawa film, uh, and it is often considered one of the best films of all time. Uh, so that's a very long intro, but Jason, what did you think? I'm of two minds about this movie, as I am with some. Um, I am not a scholar of Shakespeare, and I'm not a scholar of Kurosawa either, or a film, or of anything. But um, the it is weird to feel like it deserves the claim to one of the best films of all time, and yet know like inside of my own blessed heart that it's not nearly my favorite Kurosawa film. Even uh, it's may, maybe not even cracking like the top five of his that I've seen. Um, it is a uh, wonderfully bombastic, like, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, in 2021, uh, parlance, uh, sort of carrying into 2022, you might call it mid, the kids might call it mid. Um, it is, wait, what, this is the take we're starting the podcast with. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not just going to shit all over, over, over Ron. I'm not giving, giving myself the runs. Um, but the, like, I'm only going to be able to speak about this movie in broadest terms of like the themes and the plot and stuff, because again, I'm not. I, I'm not going to know where these things map to a lot of the Shakespeare story that, that underpins it or um, of like the like place that it has in cinema. Just if you know that you've if you've heard of it before, you sort of know it's it's provenance that it's a very long and very um, dramatic and engaging movie that altogether does not boil down to like one of my favorite Kurosawa's personally. But I, I will say um, I like how the feeling of and I don't know if this is President King Lear, but the feeling of like um, Hidetora, the man, the king who renounces his throne and goes mad, uh, his like lack of humanity, his lack of self-awareness, his faith in militaristic uh, rule and like this dynasty that he's trying to create. I like how those underpin and like not only do they kick off the plot very vividly from the very first few scenes, but they also like lay the seeds for everything that has that comes after um, because we don't see actually his uh, rise to rule, but we see a lot of the lives and people who his rule has affected. And um, like, he's been ignorant throughout this whole time that uh, like all that his empire has bred, all that resentment and discontent uh, among his children, among the people who he's actually crushed. Like I think Kaide is a really good example of that, where she is actually, she's married to one of his sons, but uh, her whole family was killed by the regime of um, Hidetora's like militaristic rule. Therefore she like is just biding her time and waiting for the time to strike. It's given when he sort of shows this gap in his armor uh, in trying to renounce his throne and distribute his lands among his children. But um, I, to that end, I understand uh, just through basically like reading reviews and stuff that King Lear in the play is not as like vocal, especially in the second act uh, after he's banished from his, um, uh, or sorry, he is way more vocal than, um, uh, than Hidetora is in, in, in the second act of this movie, because in this movie he uh, is driven to insanity and just sort of like wanders the wastes with, with uh, uh, Tango, his, his uh, court jester um, type guy. But um, I think that the silence is a nice touch that he's like literally sort of dumbstruck at the realization of uh, what his rule has wrought and sort of the people who come into the plot between Sue and Tsurumaru uh, and, um, uh, and, and Kaide. The, just these like ghosts, these signifiers of what his like whole empire has, has brought about the sort of people it's created and the sort of like com the, the, the nature of his, uh, 
of his bloodlust, I guess, coming to roost. Like that very first scene where he kills a boar and says that it's too, uh, like it's indigestible, it's inedible. Like there's just that, uh, uh, I guess, like rule of nature, animalistic um, uh, uh, tone that that just runs throughout of like he is um, he has killed and uh, pillaged and and like taken over and conquered for so long. And the only time that he realizes that like that maybe it has been a bad thing is when it starts to completely crumble his whole family, family and dynasty um, that hubris doesn't only affect this. He's like the, the counter to that, I think is like the hubris uh, that, that, that's present in Hidetora doesn't only affect in a very Kurosawa way, doesn't only affect him and his family, but actually by the end of the movie, the very final shot, uh, I think, and I think the character's name is Tsurumaru, um, the blinded man, uh, uh, Sue's brother. Um, like at the very end, she gives, uh, his sister gives him a, a, a scroll of Buddha for protection. And then she's killed on her way to get back his flute and all this again, spoilers, whatever. Um, but at the very end, it's like, all of this conflict, all this internecine uh, battling and shit has only like the toll that it's taken the most is on complete innocence. The the people who never deserved it in the first place, the people who were already crushed by the incoming warlords empire uh, and who are still left without like this is now a blind man left on a cliff in the fi- very final shot left on a cliff without a sister, without protection of the Buddha, without leadership, just completely left to wander and fend for himself um, as he has been for years. Uh, that to me is like not necessarily two mindedness about the critical appraisal, but like where this movie uh, uh, starts to turn and it's like, it's it, the very beginning is that very Shakespeare like drama and a whole lot of characters with a whole lot of different, uh, intentions and, uh, you know, gaming for the throne and power and, uh, revenge, etc. And then eventually it starts to weave in that like, oh, there are people in this world who exist, who have been directly, but not very visibly affected. Uh, to buy, buy these conflicts. And even before the events of the movie, the conflicts that led to Hidetor coming to power. Um, that like, that's why of this movie, I guess my largest feeling is that Kurosawa's like very humanist leanings is very like intentional. Show me the people and the way that they're affected thing. Isn't like a through line or a theme that's like hinted at in it or like, uh, if, if you like look for it, it's there kind of thing. Like in a lot of, um, the movies we've seen before of between Yojimbo and seven samurai and stray dog, like we, we picked those apart. So we saw them, but like casually watching them, you might not notice them in this. It's like, it's the text by the end of the movie. It is it is very surface. It is like it has risen to the top of a sto- of a Shakespeare story. Is like okay, so this is the way that I this is the reason that I wanted to use this tale of revenge and hubris to surface like the people who it actually affects. Right? Uh, it's not like necessarily the passing of time that's led to it. It is solely the act of one the acts of one man uh, and the people who've supported him and enabled him for decades at this point he's 70 by the events of the movie uh anyway that's a lot of uh you know back and forth here and there um i i don't know without cody here i i'm all out of joie de vivre for transitions i'm i'm really the losing. world is falling apart without honestly cody please we, we need we need you back he's always the glue spent... that holds us together but you're coming now <laughs> we to talk for video game. about video games for five minutes eight, yeah eight <laughs> minutes of elden ring and pokemon talk and, that, also, and i can't even I'm bring myself to come up with this you, just like ron's mid done <laughs> i'm absolutely bringing up sekiro in my high level thoughts too so we're not even done yet Ooh. just the whole the dragon Sek- rot mechanic this is this is a movie about that mechanic from sekiro Whoa. but visited in this Fuck anyway yeah. well um, that's my that's my handoff then tell me about yes, thank you. um i uh i have like almost too many thoughts about this movie right like i think that like a lot of kurosawa movies there's so much to talk about he's like uh, the ultimate podcast uh 
filmmaker for like especially dudes who uh took eastern religion and shakespeare classes in college uh the way that i did um i'm not a i'm also not a shakespeare scholar i've taken a lot of classes about him and written a lot of papers about him but um and i'm absolutely not a buddhist um but both of those sort of backgrounds informed my reading of this movie for both better and worse i would say um i really liked what you had said jason about being of two minds um, I genuinely also think this is like one of the best movies ever made just in terms of like, this is like maybe one the master's most coherent and sort of like summarizing statement on his themes that he's explored throughout his career. It's just like Kurosawa being like, I have such a handle on what I'm doing, both sort of like artistically and aesthetically in terms of like my legacy and the history of my filmmaking and what I wanted to accomplish and sort of like in the literary sense or in the, the moral thematic sense. Um, this is a really realized movie. Um, it might just not be my sensibility necessarily, which is sort of ironic because I also think that King Lear is maybe my favorite Shakespeare. Um, or at least it has a lot of my favorite single passages of Shakespeare in it. Um, and, and so, it, I'm in this weird position, right? Where it's like my, my favorite Shakespeare by one of my favorite directors of all time produced a movie that is not probably in my top five of Kurosawa either, right? Um, and I, I think that that might just be a, a sensibility thing on, on my behalf where it's like I am for, for better and worse, like a very emotionally driven movie watcher, right? Like I'm, I'm a huge Wong Kar Wai stan, right? So it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to like make sense. It doesn't have to be tight as long as I'm like weeping by the end of it. Right. And I think that this is maybe the type of movie, like if there is a criticism of both the original King Lear and of this movie, it might be that, right? It's like, this is a movie about the consequences of one's own actions sort of coming back around to be revisited. And it's, it, I'm very, it's a very emotional movie, but it's uh, it's not. It didn't evoke that same sort of deep seated feeling in me. Um, that being said, uh, on a thematic level, I think this movie is really brilliant because I think, in my opinion, it it's doing uh, what Throne of Blood was doing, which is where Kurosawa is like really making this claim about being the visual Shakespeare. Right? He's like transliterating the greatest literature of all time into a visual format. And and he is making the case in my mind that that um, you don't lose anything, right? That like he can do what Shakespeare did with moving images, which is an unbelievably egotistical thing to say. But it like if anybody could ever have done it, it's Kurosawa, right? And it's it's amazing that he's connecting that legacy to this one. Um, I also think this is a little bit elevated over Throne of Blood for me because I think he's doing something really specific um, with karma and with Buddhism in this movie that I really appreciate, um, which is that, uh, and, and again, if I'm talking out my ass and if we have any actual practicing Buddhist listeners, <laughs> they can correct me, but I think this movie understands karma really well in the sense that karma has never been a sort of like personal um, thing. Like, I, I think that the pop cultural understanding of karma is this idea that like, when you do bad things, bad things will happen to you because of God or because of Buddha or because of the universe. That's not really what it means. Um, karma is actually like way more consequentialist in the sense that it, it's basically saying like doing bad things creates a bad world and then you have to live in that world. And so does everybody else. Um, and so I really love the like widening of the lens scope 
Kurosawa is doing here to approach karma as this idea that like, this is actually a completely coherent reading of a Buddhist philosophy, right? It's like, it Buddha is not a protection in a protection god, right? He's not like a, a Christian god in many senses, where like he looks out for and and um, herds the shepherd. And so, like the the fatal sort of understand our misunderstanding that um, that our our main character uh, Hidatora has here is that like he keeps saying that he's been abandoned by Buddha. It's like that's not really how it works, right? It's the the I love the the metaphysical effect in this movie where he keeps looking up at the sky and like there's a storm that's always building right and it it is this idea that like they live in hell they talk about that all the time it's like we have created this hell we have killed the buddha the buddha is gone from this world and it's like the re- the way they did that was by creating this world right like it it turns out that when you are a warlord and when you value the things a warlord does you create a world in which those values are uh rewarded and it all comes home to roost, but it, it all comes home to roost, not only on you, right? Like you had said, Jason, that's, that's the real sticking point of this movie is that like, it's going to hurt everyone equally. It has nothing to do with sort of karma in the sense that like, you're going to get what's coming to you. It's just that everybody is going to get what is, you know? And it's like that, that sucks because it's like, that means that the innocent people and the disempowered people are also going to reap what you have sown. And that is just a natural consequence of the world that you built. And it's not fair, right? It's not, it's not fair to um, Hidatora that everyone should have to suffer for his own mistakes or that, that the people that he built have to be this way, this sort of like deceitful, underhanded way. But then you look at it from the other perspective, like you had said, Jason, and it's like, how could Lady Katie have ended up any other way, right? Like her her kingdom was wrested from her through deceit and through bloodshed. And so she became a person who uses those things to get what she wants. And so um, the the real tragedy here, as seen by Kurosawa, is, is beyond... Um, King Lear himself and beyond Hidatora, which I really enjoy, right? Like, I think that um, maybe I haven't read King Lear in a long time yet, but like, it really is sort of like taking the King Lear idea of everything coming home to roost and, and like this paradigm shift where all of a sudden King Lear reflects back on his life and sees what he has actually been doing. And it, it makes it feel, it makes him recontextualize everything about who he is and what he has won much like in this movie, but it, I think in, in King Lear, we follow King Lear, right? Or we follow his immediate family and we understand how the impact on them, which is why I think that like the fact that Hidatora is such a non-entity through a lot of this movie is actually really fascinating, right? Because instead it's like Kurosawa is saying, look, like King Lear is not the tragedy here. The tragedy is the fact that we all have to live in the world that King Lear made, um, and I really enjoy that. And I think that like the, the last images in particular are like so astoundingly affecting at, at bringing that about, um, the, the Buddha, uh, which reminded me of like Scorsese's silence, right. When it, when it's like laid out on the, it like falls oh, yeah. from the tower and, um, there's a lot of great imagery here. And like, I think it all works, right. It, it all works really well. I just don't, I don't know that I found it as affecting or as moving as a lot of Kurosawa's movies. Um, even the sort of like the ones that are sloppier, but a little bit more um, scrappy, you know, like I think I like uh, um, Stray Dog more than this movie. Right. But like, I, I would be hard pressed to make a case that Stray Dog is a better movie than this movie is. 
but that's just how it, how it goes sometimes. But I'm really excited to hear what Aaron has to say as another uh, King Lear fan and as a big Kurosawa <laughs> fan. So what do you think, Aaron? Am I on base or am I totally not doing it? Uh, I, I think you're you're a little on base. Yeah, I, a few misgivings, I think, just uh, uh, watching this. One is that, that I do like King Lear quite a bit, but I think unlike Harry, it is not my favorite Shakespeare. I think when I think of uh Shakespeare's tragedy specifically King Lear's like one that I I don't know like I I, I don't know how to not sound douchey doing that I, I like I respect it more than like I actually you know re- reading yeah. Hamlet is like line to line like just like a, a, a I mean Hamlet's joy the best to one. do right yeah <laughs> yes it is it, it Hamlet is actually the best one yeah um but King Lear I've always liked it I've always enjoyed it but it's it's something that I kind of like respect more than like really have some sort of deep deep love for uh the second one is that I I did not see this in a movie theater uh which is a big bummer because this feels like a movie to see in a movie theater uh so so I don't know just the cinematography and the color and the you know we've, we've was mentioned earlier but like the sense of scale here is i think something that like it just kind of sucks to watch it on uh television in my apartment um so that is a bit of a bummer um but i i think that uh, apart from that uh you know i think my my take here is, is very generally that i think ron may uh, in fact be uh the best of kurosawa's epics um i think that maybe something like seven samurai could give this a run for its money right um but i, I think in general uh, tying into, I think what both of you said, I think I might prefer, uh, Kurosawa's, uh, I don't know, less sprawling films, right? Uh, Yojimbo, Redbeard, uh, some of the other ones mentioned as well. I think I prefer those. Um, and not that they're, they have, you know, a lot of those are, are samurai stories as well. Um, but something about the kind of closer scope, uh, in scale, I think allows, Kurosawa to kind of flex his directorial muscles a little bit in a way in ways that aren't purely based on that scale like not that any of the filmmaking here is like I think all the filmmaking here is like above reproach in like every way right but I think that there's something when I think about Yojimbo uh, the scene of the main character kind of walking into town how Kurosawa like really plays with long shots and camera movement and it's like so flashy but not in this like over the top way that like a lot of like long takes especially now are Um, I really like that and there's something about like this kind of story that just doesn't invite too much of that unfortunately. Or like uh, um, another really good example yeah. is is like uh, Redbeard, right? Like think about yes, how well we well, got to know yeah. the well and like the whole doctor's clinic in Redbeard. Yes, right? that, yes, like yes. Such a it's character. a great example. Um, yes. Just like in Yojimbo, the town is such a character. Like that town like reinvents the way you think about spaces in movies, right? Yeah. And like I, I think you're right, right? Like in this movie, they're just castles and those castles have no real – character i I think it's intentional it seems like maybe it's kind of a a late career thing i would curious i I haven't seen any of the late kurosawa films apart from dersu rosala uh uh which is is good and is such like a different thing that it's kind of hard to compare but i haven't seen dreams i haven't seen rhapsody in august for example so who knows what's going on in those ones uh but you know at least uh I guess my next point is that I have to compare this film to Kagemusha uh, for a bunch of different reasons, right? One is that we just talked about it recently. Uh, the other is that um, this film is actually quite a bit like Kagemusha, even even other than just like it was made, visually. you know, five years or so later. But yes, visually, I think a lot of the story elements are, are very similar. Um, Kagemusha is another film that doesn't 
the camera doesn't move like Kurosawa often will set up the camera and do very interesting things uh, with kind of the placement of the actors and, and the environment and whatnot. But there's not as much movement, I guess, which is maybe a very dumb way to talk about it. But, you know, the beginning scene of Kagemusha, similarly, the scenes of in this film of um, of the uh, uh, the King Lear character, uh, Hiritora, um yeah, it's often like the camera is set, the the actors are where they need to be, and then like the relationship between where they are in, in the frame and whatnot kind of evolves over the course of the scene as things are brought to light and things are discussed. And I do like that, but I also maybe prefer the style of something like Yojimbo a bit more. Um, other than that, because I've been, I've been ranting a little bit here, um, I think that I, I view this film kind of as an evolution of... Uh, a lot of what was done in Kagemusha. I think it's a uh, an evolution, and I think I think better. Uh, no shade to our, our guest Peter Hoganson, who I think Kagemusha was his favorite, but I, I think I do prefer what's going on here a bit more. I think that a lot of the themes that were brought up in in Kagemusha, specifically about how uh, the powerful and specifically the state uh, kind of does what it wants, right, and that the the um, the not powerful and the lower classes are the ones who ultimately suffer. I think those themes are brought up in Kagemusha, but they don't feel as fully kind of dealt with. I think that a character like uh, Lady Kaede here, um, she brings those themes a bit more to the forefront, right? Uh, the Kagemusha ostensibly does that as a character, uh, but I think that that uh, her character does that even more, right? She is sympathetic, yet she's still villainous. It feels like what Harry was mentioning about having to kind of live in a world that is damaged due to your prior, previous actions, and like, yes, the, the, the result of that is often evil, uh, but like, who is, who is ultimately responsible for that, right? So I don't know. It's just like I couldn't help comparing it to Kagemusha. I think I prefer this. Um, I really like this film, but I think, yeah, I think if I had to really admit it, I think I'd probably agree with both of you that there is something about some of his other works that strikes me a bit more, but maybe if I saw this on a big fucking screen, I might, I might come around on it. It's mid. It looks really good, but it's mid. Um, stop no, stop calling the, the 1985 film Ron mid, Jason. That's what we talked about after the after the uh, movie in theaters. We were right. We were like, this is like maybe like mid tier Kurosawa. It's still better than like almost any movie ever made. Yeah. It's still like one of the best movies ever made. It's fucking wild that that that's true of Kurosawa. I think this is middle upper tier. This is like the the middle of the upper tier, not middle upper tier, but, but yeah. of the upper tier. It's yeah. In the middle, you know and i should say like i he made what 30 31 movies and i've seen liberally a dozen of them maybe um i'm definitely not qualified to say like it's his best or it's not his best like just of the ones that i've seen it's not it's not up there um but i want to bring it back to a point that both of you brought up that i hadn't really considered and that's like the very structure and form of this movie and harry maybe this is going to marry with your point so maybe just just remember what you were going to say um but uh the sort of blown out broad openness of the movie that sort of dilutes some of maybe what you love about Kurosawa movies in a way. Um, it makes it hard to compare to like when you were talking about Redbeard and Yojimbo and how the village and the doctor's uh, abode, like the, the, what is it? The doctor's office clinic um in redbeard is just like such a part of that movie and it, and it sort of dictates the terms and uh, and scope of the story in this movie li- like literally the opening shots are of these gigantic broad vistas of you know rural japan uh with nothing but greenery like no human made anything in sight um that like slowly over the course of the movie like i think the purpose of that from the beginning from the get is like Show us the breadth of Hidetora's domain. Show us everything that's at stake. Put a reference in my mind 
for what like for the tools that we're playing with here for what is like actually like i said at stake what's what's you know what are the chips uh in the game what what is everybody fighting over show show me that like give me an idea of the scale of this thing and then it's almost like and i think you might be able to pinpoint the exact scene but over the course of the movie into the second and third acts it starts to like narrow back down into not only just smaller spaces but more tangled stories between them and like more intricate characters and some of those like um like we like we talked about in all of our intros like those the uh various intentions and sort of um agendas that color each character start to like intermingle and like necessarily bind us a little bit closer to the story um until like we start to focus until we get like really hyper focused on uh like the real impact the real people the real karma that the movie is trying to exemplify right that's trying to the thing that it's trying to say becomes clearer and clearer the less we focus on like look at the breadth of Hidetora's domain and all of this land that has and all of these places and all of this culture that has to be you know th- that it, it is being divided up and think about like the future of that into like hey there are some people who represent some really fucked up shit <laughs> that the lord did that the warlord did let's zoom in on them a little bit let's give them screen time let's give them significant script i mean kaede is really like the only major female character in this movie but she is like she stands for i think pretty much the entire uh like class and entire like world that hitatora is subjugated um does that like does that make sense is is the idea that the form and the function there marry at some point in the movie um like does that make any sense to y'all yeah, you teed that up super well for for my own point, not to be sort of <laughs> self-centered about it, right? But like that that marries really well with what Aaron has been discussing, especially comparing this movie to Kagemusha is really fascinating. Um and it's there's sort of a great irony here which I'm not necessarily capable of speaking to as well as I would like because it's been so long since I uh, read King Lear. But um, as I remember King Lear, it's like it's one of Shakespeare's most fun to read from an existential lens. And I I think that this movie is really fascinated in the ways in which we are not discussing interiority and identity um, and in which the ways in which that doesn't really matter. And I I love that so much as a like this ultimate um, referendum on uh Hidetora's life. Um, It works so well from that perspective because in King Lear, like and especially in the early parts of this movie, the thing that really stands out to me is like the, the, um, categorical gulf between what is and what they say is right. Where like this is Hidetor is a guy who has made his way in life by using force to impose his meaning and his message about what the world is and how it works onto reality. Right, he's he's using a warlord's tools to try to impart a message that is not a warlord's. Instead, he thinks of himself in this way. Right, he thinks of himself as this benevolent father, this great unifier of Japan, this person who brought peace to his domain, and so he thinks that he is going to be treated that way in his old age by his sons. Right, he he gives the whole speech, which is a, a direct. Um, sort of like transplant from King Lear about the arrows that don't break when they're held together instead of the arrow that breaks when it's on its own. Um, and then the movie is is sort of, or King Lear is about like how eventually like the bill comes due, right? And like you, it turns out that the, um, the medium is the message, right? And like you can't do what a warlord does and expect that just because you said you were doing something else that will be. You still have to end up in the world where 
violence is valued because it is the only thing that you have allowed to be valued. Um, I what I really like about this and and what you said. Um, Jason, is that like, especially in the second act, this opens up a lot like King Lear, actually, and it becomes like this ensemble almost where we have subplots and subplots within subplots, right? Like we think more about King Lear's or um, Kitatora's sons in in the second act than we do him, right? Like in Lady Katie becomes sort of the de facto main character, but there's also Lady Sue and her... Um, uh, her brother, and there's the the youngest, and his sort of like rebellion against the other two uh, sons, and so like there is almost this sense in which like Kurosawa he like he like sets up the pieces for this interior exploration of the existential crisis that King Lear goes through in the original King Lear, where you know in the second act of King Lear all of this stuff happens, but also like there are some of my favorite speeches in Shakespeare, right? Where King Lear is talking about how like everything he believed has shattered and now he has no identity. He's doing Kagemusha basically. And like Kagemusha is the much more existential film of these two films, I think, right? Which is fascinating because here, like Kurosawa almost gives us all of that. And then he's like, actually though, we're going to pay attention to everybody else and see what happens. Oh, sorry, go ahead. It is to challenge the the existential remark. Is there something I think ultimately existential about this idea of society kind of uh, uh, descending into chaos as a whole, right? Uh, as a result, a result of uh, maybe I'm reading this through through kind of a dumb uh, a Western lens, but some sort of uh, I, I mean, the, the, just the the symbol of like the Buddha, right, being kind of thrown on the ground, right? The idea of like. Um, society kind of lost any sort of spirituality or any sort of uh, any sort of higher being or purpose or power that would kind of um, uh, you know grant some sort of ethical or like moral uh, kind of core to society, right? And society having moved past that and just being kind of left in the wake here. I think there's there is something kind of existential about that to me that that I found as like. You know, speaking as a film that I think is thematically a little more mature or evolved than something like Kagamusha, I think that that's one thing that I like really uh, stuck to while watching it, I guess. Uh, well, first of all, I like Kagamusha significantly more than this movie. So uh, maybe we can I'll talk about you. that. But um, uh, yes, I mean, like, I totally agree. And, and especially in the first act, like, this is a very existential movie in the sense that, like, a character's interiority is literally rendered exterior, right? Like, like literally there is something rotten in the state of ancient Japan, not to mix my Shakespeare metaphors, but in, like, Ran or uh, Hidatora is, like, looking at the storm come in, right? He keeps looking up at the sky and he's like, something's wrong. Like, there is something offbeat about the world sort of like spiritually existentially where like he literally thinks that they've been transported into hell. That same thing happens in King Lear. Um, I, I, I just think that like what, and, and I think that, that it's, it's a truism in both um, the movie and King Lear, but like in this movie, I really like how it's like, but now we are not going to think about how that affects the man who did it. Right. It's like, that is not as important as the fighting right? Like as the combat, it's like as seeing these people get just butchered in this civil war. Um, and it, it's so terrible. And it's like, Hidatori is still like, oh, this is all about me. And it's like, dog, like, it's not about you. Like, you don't matter here. King Lear is not what matters here, right? It's it's the soldiers that are getting mowed down. 
fighting this pointless civil war. It's people like Lady Katie who like have no resort but to to become this monstrous creature who beheads an innocent person because of what was done to her, right? It's like this is this is the real like it, it, the the existentialism is not just what what is visited on your identity. It is the identity that you allow everybody else to achieve, right? Or that that everybody else has to affect. Like that this idea that like existentialism is so in, interiorly focused, right? It's all about you and like your identity and where you came from. But it's like this movie is is so much about like. But remember that like what you're doing. And what other people do are doing affect other people, right? It's like that that rotten state of Denmark is not just something that happens to you and something you have to contend with. It shapes reality. Um, and I really like that as sort of like a it's like a referendum to the idea of like being a head assed sort of like scholar. I think I'm I think I'm coming around on this quite a bit, actually. <laughs> it's really it's that's that's a fascinating part to this, I would say. Aaron, you put on your mic for a sec. What was that? I, no, I was just, I was just, I was just. I, I like when, I like when we, uh, when, when we come to the pod and we're thinking like, oh, this movie's just okay, and by the end of it, we've talked ourselves into. Well, me, uh, I think it's film. worse than when we started. Have, have, listened have we ever done the opposite? Away. I was gonna say, have we ever gone in like really liking, <laughs> and then by the end, we're just like, ah, it's kind of fucking. Uh, actually, I was, I was I gonna, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that Cody isn't here because I fucking loved Fitzcarraldo so much. <laughs> Uh, I would say like, what about attack the block where we're like, I loved attack the block when we watched it. And then afterwards we were like, Oh, there's a lot of problems <laughs> with the movie's politics and stuff. Uh, that but, happens. You know, it happens. It hey, goes. both ways. That's karma. Um, I want to talk about like fr- from all that, pr- from the perspective, from like every perspective we've already encountered, you know, from the formal to the existential, to the writing, et cetera, and to its references to Shakespeare directly. Um, I think that there is just like a shift in scope in tone and like the whole course of the movie, obviously at the tower scene, I forget which castle it is the first, second or third, but a castle burns uh, and uh, Hidetora is inside. And basically it's going to be his moment of death, but he is struck by madness, wanders away and is allowed to leave on the pretense of like, Oh, he's not going to be a problem because he's uh, he's, he's lost his mind. He is just going to wander the wastes with his gesture um, until he dies. So, uh, but like that scene alone is the one that you will probably know about if you follow any like synesthetic film Twitters, because there's that, picture of kurosawa like on the ridge watching it burn it was the most expensive movie in japan at the time um and it is a remarkable scene i think it's like it's easily i think my favorite scene in the movie uh not just because of how like bombastic it is but because of how like narrowly it focuses i think in that scene it is like I forget who's alive and who's dead by that time, but everybody kind of has a stake. Everybody has a reason for like caring for the outcome of this. Everybody's perspectives are kind of shown through, you know, intercut shots and, uh, and, and such. And at the same time, it's like, my God, they actually are burning like a, uh, a Sengoku era, um, style castle before my very eyes. Uh, but like we were, as like we were talking about with the spaces that this movie occupies and like in comparison to other Kurosawa films, I think this is the marriage of that, of that scope of that idea of like, look at the world that's affected and look at how we actually move through the spaces that are affected, how we like relate to and use these spaces to, um, you know, like it's, it's a burning of a castle, not only to kill Hidetora, but to weaken his power, right. To, to like basically get him to resign his title as well as the power he's already given up. Um, so it's like a, a place of changing. It's a place of evolution, but it's very like narrowly focused on a thing happening at a time. And I think that's why that scene sings for me so much. 
Yeah, really well said. I think that like, especially considering that the the literal translation of this movie is chaos, which again really speaks to the fact that like, uh, it's not about King Lear, it's not about Hidetora, it's about the realm, right? It's about everyone. Um, I think that 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 is really like a a great realization of the themes that this movie is going for. It's also like. It, again, to to go off of the chaos thing, it's like maybe one of the most effective uh, uses of losing the plot, quote unquote, in cinema history for me. Where like I don't know how you guys felt about this, but there was a point during that combat sequence when I when I failed to comprehend who was fighting whom, and sort of like oh, yeah. forgot. Yeah. I mean, what was going on. all you have all you have are like colors and banners, and it's easy to forget who's who's flying what. Well, and and the fascinating thing is that like even contextually, it seems. Um, logistically impossible for that battle to have happened the way it did because I believe it is the combined forces at that point of the first two sons fighting the 30 retainers that King Lear has. And then during that (laughs) fight, the second son betrays the first. And I was like, there are more than 30 people dying right now. Like, there are so many dead people in that castle. And like, I honestly, I think that that is a feature, not a bug. Like, I really think that Kurosawa wanted to be like, much like like the the impact of a of an existential crisis in King Lear is so powerful and so um unnerving that it makes reality itself keep, seem to come unraveled right that's what madness is and that's also what the hell and chaos is here is that like when you think something is one way and you find out your entire life is a lie it feels like the world itself is no longer the world right it it feels like something else has happened um, that's what this battle feels like to me, where like it takes on this like really auteur art cinema type feel where like there are so many shots and reaction shots and battle shots and and shots of just death and chaos. I mean it's it's horrifying to watch, right? Like it is genuinely kind of upsetting to to like take in and to the point where like the movie kind of comes unraveled in my in my opinion right where it's like this is just in the middle of this movie this tight movie about kurosawa <laughs> all of a sudden we're just in hell like we're just watching this this horrifying yeah. thing play out sound cuts and out the, yeah yeah like yeah. and and like and to the point where like when we come back in and we're back in the tower i was like disoriented right it's like oh we're back in a movie now like we're we're doing a thing we're like and like i really love that as sort of an artistic choice right where it's like like you you think you can understand war and you think you can come to war with this sort of like context of like this is why it's happening this is how it's playing out but like somehow all of those rationalizations and um sort of like ex post facto um analyses they pale in comparison to the thing right yeah, it's like yeah. we can say that like this is in old warlord's realm being uh, seeded from him by his children. And like, that is what we are seeing playing out on screen, but that's not what it feels like we're seeing playing out on yeah, screen. Yeah. You, what you make me think of is like, is this the first time he has lost to like in the fiction of the world? Yeah, like presumably yeah. this is the first time he's actually yes, experiencing he, loss and, and it probably is be dead or something. Effective. <laughs> right. Right. And he's just sitting there sort of like, that's where his dead eyes that come that have come to like characterize uh, Tatsuya Nakadai in the role. That's where those start to appear is like, he's just, completely yeah, right? lost is he all sense one of, of the self. top five film stairs of all time 
Like just oh, like yeah. so easily daring. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we were talking about this after the movie. It it has to suck so bad to be Tetsuya Nakadai in so many ways. It's like my man was in like literally fifty of the best movies ever made. Maybe as many Kurosawa's as Toshiro Meifune. He was in the human condition. He was in Sword of Doom. He was in a billion other movies. But like when you think about Kurosawa, like who do you think of, right? It's like it's not yeah, Tetsuya Nakadai. I wonder how he feels about Dashiro Mefune. Uh, anyway, it's it's an honor just to be nominated. I think for Mister Nakadai, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to say that I there is something to like the the physicality of this movie that is like kind of awe inspiring as well. Uh, one, one, I guess one side of that would be the the scenes of violence are I think uh, like really impactful uh, partially because things are like so physical right like there's a there's a shot of a guy falling off of a horse and like 10 other guys on horses just ride over him and I'm like how did that guy not get killed and stepped yeah, it, it did that like guy get killed and stepped on i don't know on camera i right? think it was a dude <laughs> yeah it's like that guy it's just like i don't think a horse stepped on him but like if you're the stunt man there you're you're yeah, probably I'm, I'm watching this movie in 2D. That it, one. it looks like he's getting crushed by like 30 horses it's always snuff film in the middle of this movie <laughs> yes uh the other part of that though is kind of awe-inspiring just in regard to the the scenery and the you know the locations they're filming in i mean there is something i mean you could you know you can watch uh, i don't know Lord of the Rings, kind of whatever uh, uh, kind of large epic scale fantasy films you want. But there is something like very wild about watching a film like Ron and seeing like this fucking castle that they shot in. And like that is like an actual castle fort, you know, some sort of fortification uh, that existed. You know, I'm sure a lot of that stuff was, of course, you know, sets and whatnot. But a lot of the stuff that shot is like those are just like fucking old ass buildings. And it, it, there is something like really amazing uh, watching that. Similarly, uh, the, the nature in this film was really beautiful as well. Um, you know, uh, Japanese uh, kind of art uh, from the very limited uh, amount that I know is something that does kind of tend to uh, stress like the just like the the massive scale of nature, right? Large kind of waterfalls and, and mountains. Um, and that is in this film as well. Like you kind of see that stuff. I remember I saw like a, a Japanese art exhibit, uh, I think at one of the art museums in, in Minneapolis when I lived there. And there's like, there was like a large wall scroll that was like a whole room. And it's just like a giant fucking mountain and a waterfall. And you're like, Oh, that's, that's exaggerated. Like, you know, that art, artistic interpretation, whatever, like well, mountains aren't that big. And then like the first scene in this where uh, Hidetora is like talking with his sons and the other people who were there. And the mountain is like so large in the background. It's like absolutely wild. It's like, really really amazing to see and like kurosawa really pulls out that camera quite a bit even during the, the scenes of battle um to like show the scenery and the nature uh around it and it's like really effective for me and it's it's all to that very pointed um thematic purpose right like it's not it's not just visually it's like king lear says like oh, I killed Buddha and brought hell to earth. And we actually see it. And this movie does a lot of my, like my favorite thing, which I talk about all the time, but like it, it also recontextualizes so much of like the Japanese art and history that it's referencing, right? Where it's like, it's, it's mano no aware. And it's all of that ephemerality of life stuff and all of that, like the beauty of passing and transient things. But it like, it, it pulls the rug out from under you, right? Like it does to you what, what happens to, um, uh, to Hidatora here where it's like all of a sudden there's a turn 
right? Where like you look at the beauty and the majesty of that wall scroll, that mountain, uh, all of the like the art of like feudal Japan, and it's like look at the the amazing incomprehensible beauty of the world and it like all of that is moving through me right it's like like this is here for people to depict but then all of a sudden you're like wait a minute it's not it's actually like all of that stuff is terrifying <laughs> it's like that it, that is like the the utterly like uncaring unceasing enormity of nature visited upon you right and and like all of a sudden like hidator is like i don't have any power over this like that, like all of this majesty that I thought I created, this realm that I thought I had tamed, it's not mine. It just is, and like yeah. now it's coming crashing down on me. And and so like I love that. I love this idea that like because that that's so in keeping with so much of that sort of mano no aware like memento mori aspect of Japanese art is that like the fleeting nature of life is beautiful, but the fleeting nature of life is also terrifying because it's fleeting right it's like all of yeah. this is coming like you have to remember what's the, li- what's the line in the film about uh uh life's uh oh what is it life's tragic arrow right like we're we're not gonna we're, i don't want to break your arrow we're here to save you from life's tragic i can't remember but it's it's yes right it's nice uh, well, especially yeah. because this is a dude who like, oh, I'm sorry, on a very personal level, it's also just like a guy who is rendered destitute because he's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to give all my shit to my sons and they'll take care of me. And then his sons are like, nah. And <laughs> so like there is a very, along with the existential breakdown, it's like also very, very physically true, right? It, it's just like, this is a man who like has lost his identity. It's also a man who has lost all of his money. <laughs> so like it, it totally <laughs> yeah, works on that boy. level. Uh the two things on that um one is that i think in on wikipedia i didn't clock this while i was watching it but on wikipedia it says that uh hidetora runs when he goes mad and tango follows him through um through the wastes basically that he runs to literally a volcanic plane and i i guess that's just a geological thing where like literally the like previously erupted volcano it has just like solidified into earth yeah, uh, it should it should be said that talk, talking about the nature in the film that I, I think as a cost saving uh, measure, a lot of these scenes of, of nature were shot in Perrysburg, Ohio. Uh, ah, so okay. yeah. a lot of what you'll see, a lot of, <laughs> I made that up. It's not true. <laughs> I couldn't tell whether Harry's like shocked reaction was like actual be, shock for a second. Can you imagine how like, good that there, would be? There are a couple <laughs> establishing shots of Centralia, Pennsylvania. <laughs> the the shot of the 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 what they refer to as the the first castle. Uh, with uh, uh, the first son uh, is, is is it is a, a BP station uh, outside of Perrysburg <laughs> um, they had renovated in Central Florida. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a it's a medieval times uh, in, in Perrysburg. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, is stupid. We're stupid. <laughs> this this was really stupid. I I forget what my other thing was, but it was going to be about the world and sort of the locations they've chosen, uh, etc. So. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm all out of talking points. Was there anything else we wanted to expound upon? Any final thoughts that we should, uh, that we should bring up before the end of the show? Uh, real quick about Lady Sue. I think that there's a really good, um, she, she is like kind of almost a thematic foil for Hidatora himself here in a really fascinating way where she is Hidatora's innocent, right? Like she is maybe the one person that like, he has only indirectly, screwed over so badly uh in contrast to lady katie right like she is sort of like his 
his legacy of good if Lady Katie is is his legacy of evil, right? And she's also to to this movie's Buddhist point, she is like the only like openly devout Buddhist, right? And she is the person who who says to her blind brother, like, Buddha will protect you. Like this is what he's here for. And so her miscomprehension is is weirdly almost the same as Hidatora's, uh, in the sense that like she thinks that she has good karma because she's a good person and that that karma is ultimately going to be her savior. Um, just like Hidatora thinks that he's going to be damned because of his bad karma, but he can't understand why it's happening to everybody else too. Right. And so I really love that like Sue at the end of this is like, she's murdered by Lady Katie and her brother is left destitute and on his own probably to die. And I really love that like it's, it's, cruel almost but it does it is like still the point of the movie that like it cuts both ways it's like Mm -hmm. there is no there is no like there is no interpersonal bad karma it's just the world there is also no good karma right Right. it's like you can't just live this quiet life of um like um patience and love and um temperance and have a good life because that's not how the world works, right? It's a yeah. it's a really fascinating criticism of like I and again, I'm totally ignorant, but like maybe just like the modern conceptualization or bastardization of Buddhism in general, right? Like or of of uh organized religions in general where it's like you know, like you can stay in your place and not really like have to be a political person do you if mean, you're a good person. Do you mean a serious man 2009. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a very like you know, oh, you noticed it type thing in the movie, but she like that faith in 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 faith, I guess, like her idea of the karma that you know she is putting into the world being her reward and not realizing the broader implications of actually like the things going on in the world around her the like in that way, sort of that same hubris, that same um lack of self awareness, she literally gives her brother, her blinded brother, like no eyes, blind brother uh a scroll of the Buddha to keep him safe he can't he can't see that. He can't use that like that. That is symbolically and literally meaningless to him. Right. And then not only that, but he actually, because of his disability, loses it, like drops it down a ravine at the end of the movie. Right. Like, I don't know, just uh, just I guess the, the, the symbolic and um, uh, and figurative ways that this movie puts ties all those ideas together and like the vessels through which like it becomes the story. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe I am turning around. Maybe it's like upper mid at this point. Yeah, it's upper mid. Um, <laughs> and also, like, it's worth noting that Surumaru's um, eyesight was was gouged away by Hidatora. Yes. Uh, as punishment when when they took the castle. Right. So it's exactly. like, yeah. A- again, a complete innocent, a person who has only suffered. And it's like you don't get mm-hmm. what you have coming. You get what other people give you, and yeah. then like those people give you something back. <laughs> That's what karma is. It's like, it's not, it's not about sort of like the universe rewarding good behavior. It's about like when you, when you fuck, fuck around, you find out. (laughs) That's what karma is. Uh, Harry, Harry with the Buddhist take. Uh, Tying into that, I do, we talked about it a little bit, but uh, Lady Kaide, uh, uh, her character, I think is, is wonderful. I guess, I don't know if this is like final thoughts or whatever, but uh, her character is truly wonderful. I think if you, you have a few criticisms of Kurosawa, I think that, maybe the lack of like great female characters in his movies would uh, potentially be one. I think that she is one. Uh, uh, she is like maybe kind of the star of the show here, to be quite honest for me. I think that her character 
character's journey, how that ties into the backstory, how that ties into the themes that we've been talking about is, is really excellent. And I think her performance is great too. I think the scene uh, with her, uh, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, seducing uh, Jiro, uh, I think is probably the scene of the movie uh, for me. Um, uh, me too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really great. Um, and I, you know, that frankly, that's something I, I think the, the lack of like, a, again, not a strong character, but like a strong, well-written character, uh, it, you know, that was one aspect of, of Kagamusha that was like, doesn't ruin the film or anything, but it's like, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of annoying. Uh, uh, there's, there's not somebody, uh, in a role like that in that film. And I think that, um, she's, she's really great in this. Yeah. Uh, and her role in particular, I think you mentioned physicality earlier, Aaron, uh, and sort of like we've discussed it in context of the, of the tower scene and of some of the battle scenes, but like the way that she moves and the way that he moves and the way that the camera moves around them in that scene, very like Noah play that we were talking about in Kagamusha, um, like how it's just sort of very straight on until it's very tight shots straight on. There's not a whole lot of like twisting or, you know, I, I'm, I still don't know camera terms, but like not a whole lot of dynamic movement of the camera, just following them. So they have to do all of like the moving in this scene, all of the intimation of, uh, threat and of sed- seduction and of nuance is, is like totally on their performances, totally on the way that they move their bodies. And it really fucking comes together, especially through her performance in that scene. Yeah. She's also just like her characterization and her role is so perfect for everything that that Kurosawa is trying to do with this movie, right? At least in in my view, um, she is she is sort of like this. She's symbolic to Hidetora and to everyone, right? She is the the daughter of the former warlord who had the greatest power. She is considered the most beautiful person in Japan, and the the sort of like epitomization of everything that w- woman should be, according to these people, um, and. I, I love that, like, again, it's that sort of like the, the tremendous gulf between what you said was and what is, right? Like, she is supposed to be all of those things, and she is. She is just the epitomization of the world you actually made, right? Like, she is the single best player. She is the, the only person who is built for the world that was left behind, right? And so, like, everything that you think is supposed to be the epitome of this one thing is is actually it's perfect dark reflection right it like from from power to sex to beauty to um like decorum she she uses all of those tools exactly as befits a, a noble lady but she's doing them for the purposes that the world actually intends i mean like it's just dynamite right like i think that uh like the scene where she cuts uh her her to husband to be or her lover to be and then like licks the blood off of him during the seduction it's like it's the best shit in in the world um yeah it's it's so good kurosawa a little freak um and and also like even from like the shakespearean perspective um one thing that i that i anticipated not liking very much is that um kurosawa recasts uh, King Lear's daughters as sons in this movie, which I was really frustrated with, right? Because like the fact that it's daughters in Kurosawa, it like it makes King Lear's cruelty so much more manifest, or daughters in Shakespeare, yes. and like and, specifically like, his request for adoration at the beginning, yes. right? Like which well, and, and, is, like, I think changed fairly here, but it is a thing that you're like, ah, can they find some way to it, well, especially in? with Cordelia, right? Because like yes. in in this movie. Like when when his son is rendered destitute, like he's gonna go. He like you don't feel it. I I didn't feel. I didn't feel the implications of what that actually means. Whereas when King Lear runs his daughter, 
out of his castle in like medieval times, it is like very, very clear what the implication there is. Right. And so like when she is quote unquote saved by her husband later on, it like, it's like, Oh, wait a minute. King Lear is like a fucking despicable person. Like that's a, um, but anyway, but like, it's so perfect then that like, because like the, the thing that's so good about the daughters is that like, well, they're, they're really fascinating characters in King Lear, but their husbands are the, the power. Um, so I see why he changed it because in King Lear, we still end up focusing pretty much exclusively on people who grew up in this world and had this power. But like Lady Katie is such a great corrective for that because she used to be right, but she is now destitute. And so we get to see this lens of somebody who lost everything that we don't really get in Shakespeare's original. And that is like a really important addition for what, for how Kurosawa is sort of broadening the scope of what he wants to say here, I think. Yeah, I, I I kind of similarly had that thought where it's like I get why you're not. It's not even like gender bending, right? It's just a it's an adaptation that's in a has a different context, right? But uh, I do think that you know uh, Cordelia is probably Shakespeare's best female character. I mean, outside of his his romances, there are like no female characters that have like I mean, good things happen to them. I mean, yes, she's, uh, but yes, Lady Macbeth is, is up there as well. Uh, but like Cord- Cordelia's character is like very specifically, you know, the, the idea that, that she is cast out, uh, due to her like unwillingness to like kiss, uh, her, her father's ass, right. Is something that is like, uh, remarkable, but also like even more remarkable given like the, the kind of social mores and whatnot of the time that Shakespeare is writing in, right? Like she is a, you know, again, she ends up fucking very tragically dead at the end of that, uh, uh, play, but it is, it, she is a character that is like, I think there's a fairly obvious feminist reading of her character. That's, that's quite good. Uh, and I, I think it's like maybe, you know, you look, you get, you criticize Kurosawa for not having too many female characters. You can criticize Shakespeare for the same thing uh, very, very easily. And I, I love Shakespeare, but yes, I, nothing good happens to the woman in his plays uh, except getting married. Um, so yes, it is, it is great that there is a character who kind of uh, is able to, to take a lot of what uh, Cordelia does and, and kind of you'd spin that in a different direction. Uh, and that's how you get Lady Kaide and she's, she's, yeah best part of this movie right. sure uh well we got we got to him i think we got to every important character right uh is there anything else i i again i'm rudderless um so just tell me no let we're me know lost, we should... we're lost in a world that has abandoned cody it is you know what this podcast is without cody it is Chaos Ran. or turmoil. Yeah, exactly. I I, st- I stumble over some ruins and drop my picture of, of Cody's Twitter avatar uh, <laughs> on the ground and I, I am lost. Uh, my last quick shout out. Um, Peter plays the, the fool character um, in the in this movie whose name is uh, Koyami. And uh, Peter is the main character from um, or the, the star of uh, Funeral Parade of Roses. Um, and I adore him as an actor oh and, shit yeah dude yeah dude. I, I, I why totally didn't anybody tell me this too, beforehand yeah. like, wow it's that's big, amazing right it's major uh especially like the the queerness of that character um in this movie and uh man like if you had asked me like hey harry you're directing king lear uh who do you want to get to play the fool you can choose anybody in history 
uh, it would have been Peter for me, like a hundred percent. So it's it's fucking amazing that he's in this movie. Um, a real delight. I think that character is really good in this movie, also. Um, maybe not like we don't necessarily have to talk about it at length here because I think it he he largely does the thing that he does in King Lear, right? Which is like, hey, it turns out that like my fool was my best advisor. Oh, you know, but like, the, you know, uh, it's it's really good, and especially his like his love Listen, for. Man, it's and hard to argue with what's him. true, you know. Anybody yeah. else have any shout outs? Oh, Harry, you. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing we're both having the Jason same marked down that time. Issues. Yeah. J- yeah. Jason, feel we free to add that later. Not only yeah, that, it's but it's unclear like, whether it's that or some internet. It was like a one two punch of like internet problems. Yeah. Muting oh, yourself yeah, too sorry. early, just fucking doing a roundabout. Yeah, no, it's good. You know how um, I'd be. Yes. I will agree. The, the fool is uh, maybe obviously like the. It's the thing that, like, as somebody who, like, you start getting into Shakespeare and you're like, damn, the, the fool is the one who's really telling the truth here. Uh, and that's, yes, Peter is very good in this. Shout that's out to Peter. Very deep Shakespeare opinion is that the fool is actually actually smart. Um, cool. I, I realized while Harry was saying that, that I was actually referring to the sort of jester character uh, as Tango through this entire uh, podcast. It's not not the character's name. Uh, 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 that the character's name once again is uh, Koyami. Koyami. Uh, all respect to Koyami and Shinosuke, quote unquote, Peter Ikahata. Thank you so much for your uh, wonderful performances over the years. Uh, that's probably as good a place as any to wrap. I don't mean to wrap on my own uh, fuck up, but um, I thank you very much, listener, for listening to this podcast. We have just gotten done discussing uh, a lot of Kurosawa's late career. Um, Harry has something else to say. Uh, Peter is in both near and dragon guard three as a voice actor actually he's in all three dragon this is this is jason cut it off i'm talking about the right video games cut it off jason (laughs) the right video games you fascist thank you for listening to try love uh you can catch more episodes from us about uh satoshi shinosuke i was about to say shinosuke peter again i just cannot get that actor off my mind um uh, Satoshi Kon series is coming up. The Godzilla series is coming up. A lot of cool things. Uh, I don't think I'm going to want to see Mirror or The Sacrifice ever again for myself, but they're playing at the Trilon. You should check them out if you get the chance. Uh, go to trilon.org for tickets and merch and other cool ways to support the Trilon. Buy a gift card or a loyalty card. Join the club. Do whatever you can. They're a really cool organization, nonprofit, and they're uh, doing more and more cool stuff every day. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. This is Trilove. Uh, find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. And at Trilon org find me at nintendoofus very good outro jason i would just add that you know like if you want to come hang out uh we're gonna be absolutely at all of the um satoshi Kon and godzilla movies so like definitely go to those uh it's super great that they're putting those on um i couldn't be more excited about it also see funeral parade of roses it's it's very very good um and peter is great in it um i've been harry mack and you can find me on twitter at shiitake harry my name's Aaron. Uh, if you want to hang out with me, I'll be grocery shopping at Mariano's after this uh, in Chicago, Illinois. So uh, come say hi. I will try to avoid buying any of the prepackaged meals come because I'm trying to Aaron. cook a little bit more for myself. Yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. You hear that silence? This is the silence of God having abandoned us. Look, I just I want to go play Elden Ring. Can we come on? Come on, come on. Look, look, fellas. Jason, press.